What all of us share are the tears, the loneliness, the meaninglessness, the agony. Death is the end. The enemy that none of us can shake or defeat stalks us at every turn. And it will mean that eventually we will all have to join Mary Magdalene at the grave. But there is no reason to weep in fear and hopelessness alone. Why? For our answer, let's go into the empty tomb of Jesus, as described in Matthew, and take a look at the evidence. To turn to Matthew chapter 28, the Lord Jesus is in the grave. As far as the women know, he's wrapped in grave clothes. As you look at Matthew chapter 28, and this is one of the four primary sources that we have to what we're celebrating today. You live in a world, it's the 21st century, there's lots of different beliefs, there's lots of different religious leaders you can follow. And why is it that we should follow Jesus? And Matthew 28 is written by a man that was writing this material about 43 years after Jesus. Some of the people that actually witnessed the events that I'm going to talk to you about the next few minutes were alive. You know, you could actually go and check with some of the major players in this account. So it wasn't written that far. It wasn't like it was written hundreds of years later. It was actually written about 80 or so in the first century. And it begins very realistically. Some of you are going to be taught in college, and some of you might believe today that there's all these fanciful accounts and that the first century world was a world that was filled with dead people appearing and people eating with dead people and, and celebrating all this stuff that, you know, death isn't a final omen. And what I want you to realize is that just isn't true. As we open this account, we're in the first century. It was a world where the Greeks and Romans were raised on Homer. And Homer presented in his writings that really dominated much of popular thinking for centuries, his genius. And in Homeric dramas, the dead sometimes do appear, but they witness a very gloomy, ghostly, depressing, dark place. And one of the things that's really strong in Homer is that there's a locked door. N.T. Wright has just written Jesus, the resurrection, Jesus, the resurrection, the Son of God. And he analyzes all the ancient Greek-Roman literature. And one of the things he concludes is death is a locked door. In the ancient world, death was a locked door. One of the things that people knew is once you die, you never come back to life again. You never receive a body again. You never enjoy all the pleasures and all the joys and all the celebration of human life. It is over. It's a locked door. The Jews were the ones that had a belief that one day, at the end of time, according to Daniel chapter 12, and it was pictured in Ezekiel 37, that there would come a day when the nation would rise. And there might come a day when people would rise in mass, and Daniel, in fact, pictures of Daniel 12, a day in the distant future when people like you might rise again, especially Jewish people and those that seek to join them. So the Jews were the one group of people in the ancient world that believed that maybe death wasn't barred. Maybe death wasn't a locked door. Maybe you could actually go into that grave and maybe you could come back and live again in a body in a body that would be transformed, in a body that wouldn't be subject to sin and death and destruction and disease and accidents and all those things that trouble us. So there was the hope in the distant future that maybe there would be a resurrection in the body. Only the Jews believed that, but they believed it was in the distant future. Nobody believed it happened now. As these girls, you open up to Matthew chapter 28, the girl that's after the Sabbath, they're good Jewish women. 
They've celebrated the Passover celebration and they passed over the Holy High Sabbath that began at 6 o'clock on Friday evening, ended at 6 o'clock uh, Saturday night. They've spent the night in sleeplessness. And some of you ladies are in this room, if you've just lost one of your loved ones, imagine you just lost a very special friend, a dear brother, and you had seen him brutalized. You saw him scourged. You saw him whipped. You saw him stagger to the cross. And you saw him lifted up. And then you heard him collar out at its finish. You saw a Roman soldier pierce his side. How would you feel? Some of you know how you'd feel. It says early in the morning, these women, Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary doesn't tell us that she was a mother of Jesus. It's the other Mary. We know from, from the other accounts that there's some other women with them, like Mary, the mother of Jesus. And they went to look at the tomb. Matthew just focuses on two women, Mary Magdalene and Mary. And these are women that had traveled with Jesus. They'd helped supply the needs of the disciples. They loved Jesus deeply. Now, some of you that believe that this is a false account, you need to look carefully at this. Because if I was going to make up a story about the resurrection, I would not begin it like this. In the ancient world, women were not viewed as people half the time. They were not accepted as witnesses in a court. I'm sorry, girls. This isn't my view. But that was the view of the first century. So some of you that are going to be taught in college classroom that there's all a bunch of baloney, it's a made-up story. One of the things I want you to know is that Matthew was an idiot if he made up a story like this. Because why would you ever make up a story where everyone's going to say, the women just say, you know, they're just crying, they're just weeping. Of course they saw a vision of an exalted, risen somebody. You never make up a story like that. To be honest with you, I find it very realistic. It's the women that show up at gravesides, not the men. Very realistic. You know, to be honest with you, I'm a man. As I began to get ready for you today, on Friday, I got word, a cardiologist called me up and says, Mary needs to go in for another angiogram. And it looks like maybe her her heart is blocked again. And we just did this a couple months ago. We just rejoiced. Everything was taken care of. And now, you know, Mary's having a little bit of shortness of breath. And, you know, they said, man, we need to go in and check it all out. Maybe it's it's nothing. How do I react like that? I'm going to tell you as a man how I react to that. I go into my sledgehammer stunned mode. I also go into my strong mode. We're going to go through this. To be honest with you, it's easy for me to be distant emotionally. This morning, I'm still a little bit distant emotionally. And I've noticed men through the years, that's how they react. Like I've been there when daddy's just found out that their daughter coming back from Arlington was killed in an automobile wreck. And I've had that daddy stunned. I've also had him curse me out because I was a supposed minister of the gospel. That's the way men react. I don't get mad at the man because that's kind of what I do. I kind of withdraw. I can be angry. Some of you men do that. But you women, some of you women join us as men. You do that too, and you have anger. But one of the things I've noticed is women do tend to go to the grave and check things out. They're the ones that often prepare the body. They're the ones that often minister the person as they're dying. They're the person that will make sure the graveside. And in Jewish circles, it was normal. This is the third day. They believe kind of by folklore that the spirit of the deceased person hung around. That's why the Lazarus miracle is so stunning. Because after three days, he's supposed to be stinking and his soul is gone. It's been released from its cage, and it's never going to come back again. But one of the things you did before you had EKGs and all this medical stuff, you went and made sure that the person didn't just, you know, have a a sickness where they fainted. Well, with Jesus' case, no possibility. But the women are going to make sure that his spirit has set free, that he's not there. That's normal. That's the way all of us do. And what I, I want all of you today to know that sometime in your life, 
you're going to face what Mary Magdalene and Mary are going to face. Some of you right now as I talk to you, you say, man, I know what you're talking about. You see, you live in a world that tells you 600 soldiers have died. And it's like the idea, of what, you know, how, how horrible. And it is horrible. I'm really sorry. I mean, I grieve. But you know, I want you to know that the world for hundreds of years, hundreds upon hundreds of soldiers die. It's much more dangerous for you to drive your car. There's going to be many more hundreds of people killed in the next few months on your highways. There's going to be thousands upon thousands of older folks in rest homes that die. There's going to be little babies that are born in hospitals and then they die in the preemie wards. They die. In fact, you live in a world, we all run away from it, but I guarantee you, if you live at all, you're going to be joining Mary at a graveside and Mary Magdalene. You're going to weep. If you're a lady, you'll express that emotion. You'll be there. If you're a man, maybe you'll do like me. Maybe you'll harden yourself. Maybe you'll get angry. In fact, some of you this morning might be running away now. You run away from hospitals. You run away from gravesides. You run away from anyone that has terminal cancer. You run away from anybody that's wrestling with death. But you're not going to be able to run far enough. Because someday, someday you're going to have to walk to a grave. And as Mary Magdalene and Mary walk to the grave, it sucks all the joy out of life. This is the man they dreamed would be the answer to the world's problems. This was a man that could touch blind eyes, they could see. This is a man that was able to raise dead people to life, but now he's been brutalized, he's been destroyed, he's been pierced, and he is dead, and all their hopes and feared. You're going to feel, have ended. All their, their worst fears have come into fruition, and you're going to be there someday. Every one of you someday. It might not be because of death. It might be because of betrayal of a friend. Jesus faced that. It might be because you had a great dream and suddenly it's crashed. Every one of you are going to weep and mourn and cry. But what I want you to know is that Easter is about what happened next. As these ladies came to the tomb of Jesus, thinking they would grieve and they would mourn and they would check out a dead body, when they got there, look what happened. This is the earthquake that shook the world. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, he rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and they became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said he would. Come on. See the place where he lay. And then I want you to go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them. He said, greetings. Good morning. They came to him and they grasped his feet and they worshipped him. And then Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. Go and tell my brothers that aren't here. The women were there, but the brothers aren't there. Go tell my brothers to go into Galilee. There they will see me. What you decide about that little paragraph decides your eternal destiny. Some of you will say, good night. It's dramatic effect. Man, we got angels appearing. You know, we got earthquakes. And, you know, we made up the whole story. Well, before you jump into this is just a great story. Remember there was an earthquake at the cross? And some of you that are more scientifically minded, check out where the crucifixion took place. It didn't take place. Like in New Jersey, to be honest with you, I have never been in an earthquake. Uh, just slight rumbles. Uh, slight rumbles on the West Coast. I've got to be honest. 
slight rumbles in Oregon. And, but I hardly even noticed. Everyone else noticed it. And I thought maybe somebody just blew up something next door. So to be honest with you, earthquakes are not one of my terrifying fears. Tornadoes, yes. Earthquakes, no. I'm a Texan now. So I know about tornadoes, don't know much about earthquakes. And with my words now, it'll probably happen this afternoon. But how many of you have ever been in an earthquake? There's several of you have, but how many of you have never been? You're like me, you've never been in an earthquake, okay? It's really easy for you to, you know, to say skeptically, man, you know, these earthquakes, they're timed perfectly. But, you know, you need to consider something. Look at where Jesus was crucified. And if you're a seismic specialist, you're going to realize, man, this is earthquake territory. This is the biggest fault line in the world. It goes right down through the Dead Sea. It is the worst seismic disaster you can imagine. Also, I want to ask you a question. If there's one earthquake, then what does the news come on and tell you about? If there's one earthquake, there are usually after that are often as bad as the first. So before you jump off and say, well, this is just a made-up story, if there was an earthquake on Friday afternoon... There's a really good chance there might be another earthquake on Sunday morning. So you can throw out the text on other scores, but don't throw it out on the earthquake. But what I love about my Heavenly Daddy is my Heavenly Daddy controls earthquakes. He's also very dramatic. And man, when he wants to let people into the tomb, he does it. You see, the earthquake didn't have to take place. Scholars debate whether the earthquake needed to take place to let Jesus out of the grave. I want you to know that our Jesus, when he's risen from the dead, doesn't need any earthquakes to get out of a little bit of stone. But normal human beings, women that go to the tomb to grieve, in order for them to see the source of incredible joy and to see concrete evidence that the impossible has happened, They need an earthquake, and they need an angel, and the stone needs to be rolled away. And you might live in a world where there's no such thing as angels, and where the earthquakes are never timed, but I want you to know this morning that I live in a world where my Heavenly Daddy controls the earthquakes, and angels are no big deal for him because they serve him night and day, and consistently all the way through the Old Testament in prophetic revelation, and men like Isaiah, men like Daniel, men like Ezekiel, if you're from a Jewish heritage, it was normal for angels to appear looking like young men, dressed in beautiful white raiment that radiated. If you study the book of Matthew carefully, this is very similar to the way Jesus is going to look. That's why I wore a white shirt today. Because one day, from top to bottom, you're going to be radiating with glorious white, beautiful white raiment. And we're going to be tempted to worship one another. We're so glorious and beautiful. That's just the way it is. Our Heavenly Daddy loves radiating glorious white garments that just glow like the sun. And that's what the angel looked like. And notice he said, don't be afraid. Why shouldn't you be afraid? I want to say to you, I'm not afraid today. Because he's not here. Come and look at the place where he laid. I want to invite every one of you through the text, through Matthew's witness. Go into the grave. Look at the slab. Look at the grave clothes still there. And ask yourself, what happened here? What happened here? But our Savior loved the original witnesses. He loved Mary and Mary Magdalene so much. He loved the women that followed him so much that he didn't even let them just look at the grave clothes. He didn't just, he, in fact, he didn't really make them wait nearly as long as he made some of the other disciples that, that originally followed him. Later on, they're going to see him. But Jesus let the women, as they're running back from the tomb, it just shows you the incredible love that your Savior has. And he really did. He used the normal greeting. It's equivalent to good morning. Greetings, that's what he said. It's just like, hello, how are you? And there was Jesus, and the women worshipped him, and they were not afraid. 
And Jesus does. He tells them. It's, it's like, would you make up a story like this? If the risen Christ appeared, if this was a religious scene, we'd have the organ begin to play and Jesus would put up his hands, just like we always do. We're not going to have him say, good morning. Go tell my disciples. I told them I was going to meet them up in Galilee. I'm going to keep my appointment. Go tell the guys I'm going up to Galilee and tell them to go up there and I'm going to meet them there. Does that sound to you like a dramatic Sunday morning play? No, to me it sounds like, I mean, who would ever make up a story like that? Resurrected Lord appears to women running away from the tomb and what he says to them is, good morning. And remember, I told my best friends, my gang, my disciples that walked with me, that had blown it royally, you might say, but now I'm alive. And tell them, I told them all through my ministry, I'd meet him again in Galilee. And Jesus says to every one of you, you don't need to be afraid anymore. If you're killed in Iraq, if you're killed in an accident, if one of your loved ones is lost, if they know Jesus, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because I'm going to meet you. And I'm going to meet you not just in Galilee, but I'm going to meet you in that heavenly eternal garden that lasts forever and ever and ever. And that's the truth. The third thing I want you to see about this text is you don't have to believe that. This whole audience this morning, for the most part, most of you really join me. Say, man, that's the truth, that's the truth. But there's some of you that don't buy it. I want you to know that the Bible recognizes you. There's another alternative. So what's the alternative to the resurrection? You can believe this if you want to. This is the story. I want you to look at what Matthew tells us. Now, if this is all made up, I want you to think about why Matthew made up this little account. It says here, when the women were on their ways after seeing the resurrected Christ, in verse 11, that the guards went into the city and they reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. And when the chief priests had met with the elders... And when the chief priests had met with the elders, they devised a plan. They gave these soldiers money, a large sum of money, telling them, you were to say his disciples came during the night and they stole him away. And while we were asleep, if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among Jews to this very day. What Matthew is telling you is that as I go out into probably Syria, a little bit north of Israel, and as I move towards Antioch and farther to the east, Matthew was ministering up in there, probably with really ministering in synagogue and everything. As Matthew does that, the Jewish attack against that in the synagogues, and this isn't anti-Semitic because Matthew's Jewish, all the disciples are Jewish. Mary Magdalene is Jewish. Mary Magdalene. And, when Ma- and Matthew's running to Jews. So it's normal for him to interact with his people. And what Matthew's saying is, the attack against me, as I say that the tomb is empty, is this. The disciples stole the body. And that's how it happened. And that's why there's no body. Because the disciples stole it. Now, if that story's made up... Now, th- there's really interesting. In the Matthew account... They say that the disciples stole it, and Matthew said that the Jewish leaders made up the story, and that the guards were paid money to herald out that story. One thing we can know for sure is there was an empty tomb. In other words, one of the things you can get from this story, if you're a good historian, there was an empty tomb here, because why would you come up with a story about an empty tomb... Why would you come up with a story about an empty body? So those of you that are raised in a more liberal tradition that say, oh, David, man, Jesus is risen, but he's risen in our ideas. He's risen in our hopes. He's risen in our dreams. And some of you have been raised on great preaching where the guy just moves your emotions and say, man, the dream of Jesus is alive in our hearts today. Baloney. 
There was a grave that's empty. This really happened. Not some idea, not some vision of the exalted Christ. That's what the Greeks would have expected. Man, great people always lived again in another world, but their bodies stayed dead, dead, dead. And their mummies stayed wrapped, wrapped, wrapped. And graves stayed closed, closed, closed. So you've got to think about how this story generate. One of the things this story shows you, man, in the first century, one thing everybody agreed on, the tomb was empty. The explanation about how it was empty. And I want to share with you that what Matthew is telling you is that the Jewish enemies of Jesus that had tried him made up this story. If you go to a classroom today, a modern scholar will tell you, no, the church made up the story. The church, Matthew made up this story. And that raises this really weird idea that the church, the early church, made up a story about an empty tomb. Then they made up another story about the body being stolen by the disciples. Then they made up another story to counteract that because the Jewish leaders were the ones that they fictitiously say made up the whole story. I mean, you got making up and making up. Why even start making up the story? And what I want you to see is Matthew is soberly reporting. Why was the tomb empty? And some of you can follow the money. One of the things you're going to learn in life, you're going to follow the money. Some of you can do that today. You can live for money. You can follow people that will deceive you by money. And you'll live your whole life that way. The tombs will never be empty. Jesus will never raise. You'll believe what a lot of other people tell you about Jesus. He was a great prophet, a great teacher. And you're going to walk away and you're going to join the Jewish high priest. And, and they represent all religious professionals. You're going to join guards and they're just rugged soldiers that were paid off. They just followed the money. You're going to have to decide that today. I have to decide that today. What am I going to live for? This life is all there is. Tombs never empty. Guards do what guards do. I'm going to follow the money. And you can decide. You can join with the guard and say, well, I'm going to believe that what they said is true. The passage closes one of the most stirring passages in all the world. This risen, exalted Christ appears not just to Mary and Mary Magdalene, but Matthew does wait until the end, and he has Jesus appear to a whole group of men, and he closes his incredible gospel with these words. Then the eleven disciples, it says, the eleven disciples absent, absent Judah went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. If you were making up this story, why would you say that some of the original eleven doubted? It's a touch of realism. Of course they doubted. If you saw someone that you saw brutally killed and suddenly he's standing before you and he's the same but he's different and you're just staggering. Of course you would doubt. I, I promise you I would be doubting. That's my nature. And Jesus would have to convict me about it. And he's still convicting me about it today. But I want you to know that even this statement about the doubt shows you Matthew's not pulling you. He's not spinning a yarn. He's not pulling your leg. He's telling him what actually happened. Some doubted. Others worshipped. Then Jesus came to him and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I, the risen Christ, am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's what Easter is about. You've got to decide. Do you believe he's alive? This morning on Easter, we live in a world where all authority has been given to the Son of God. Some of you are discouraged about your families that don't know Jesus. The risen Christ comes to you and says, all authority has been given to me. I will talk with your family. I will minister through you to your family. 
Some of you are facing, like our own little family gathered together last night as we go around the circle, some of our kids are facing total change in plans, moving to a totally different part of the country. That's a fearful thing. And Jesus says, all the authority is given to me. Another section of our family is wrestling with a special needs child. Just like a whole lot of you in our church. It's like the Lord has brought a whole lot of special needs kids to our church family. We have so many of your precious kids. If you're sitting there, dear mom and dad, I just want you to know that we grieve with you and we suffer with you. And we don't do it from a distance. And in this case, I'm not operating like I shared with you earlier. I'm very close. So some of our family has to share the agony of what it means to work with a daughter with Rett syndrome. And what it means to struggle. Does Jesus have any authority here? Is Jesus going to do anything here? Resurrection Sunday is about the fact Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. I'm going to still be able to teach you. I'm going to still be able to disciple you. I'm still going to be able to help you through this. And one day I promise you, because the tomb is empty, Blythe Carlin Wardson will laugh and talk and communicate the praise of Jesus. Maybe she'll do it in this life, but for sure, because the tomb is empty, she's going to do it forever and ever and ever. And every one of you with special needs kids, some of you have kids that have much more severe disabilities than Blythe does. Some of you have grandkids who are like that. You know what Easter means? It means you can endure. It means you can hang on. It means we're going to get home and we're going to cry together and we're going to struggle together. And we're going to ask God to work miracles, but because the tomb is empty, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, and he's never going to be beaten again, ever. This Easter Sunday means that we need to decide, are you going to follow the money, believe the lie, or are you going to believe in the resurrection? I want to invite every one of you, deep in your heart, have you accepted this risen Christ? As we close the service, can you say, David, in my heart, I have decided this Savior that died for me is my Savior. I have welcomed him into my heart, and I have trusted him. And I believe with all my heart that he rose again from the dead. Right where you're sitting, you can make that decision. Right where you're sitting, you can open your heart and say, I've heard today the the incredible truth that Jesus, God's Son, really did conquer death. And I'm going to trust in that. I'm going to just, deep in my soul, I'm going to say, Jesus, I believe with all my heart that on the third day the tomb was empty. And then invite Jesus. That's our goal this morning. Invite Jesus to come to live in your heart. Many of you already made that decision. If you haven't made that decision, make it to now. Some of you have never publicly declared that decision. If you've never publicly declared that decision, Matthew says, Jesus said, go and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you really have trusted Jesus in your heart, then the scripture says that you need to be committed to Jesus enough that you'll publicly go before your parents, your friends, your relatives. You'll invite people to come and you'll publicly tell them, I want to show you what Jesus has done in my heart. I want to close with this. On Monday, on Monday, I sat at a table with a whole group of men and women. At the end of the table to my left was Peter Wang. Peter Wang is a nuclear physicist, a Chinese nuclear physicist that was trained in Red China. Peter was sent to Southwestern Medical School to do research. He was a believer. It was a miracle. He started praying in China, Lord, I want to be able to go to the United States. I want to get further training. And Peter, by a miracle, the communist government let him come. 
Near the end of his research stay, there were several other Chinese scientists working with him, and Peters came up with an idea. Why don't I have him over to my house? He had them over to his house, and he was unashamed. He had Bibles. He shared them. And one of the scientists said, you know, you're a nuclear physicist from China. You're a communist, aren't you? What do you believe? What, what's all this? You're so superstitious. And Peter spent the next hour and a half saying, I'm not superstitious, but I believe. Jesus hung on the cross for me. He rose again for me. When he got done with that time, a bunch of his colleagues said, I want to go to church with you. And a whole bunch of them went to First Baptist down in Dallas. That's worshiping even as we meet now. And when the service was finished, a bunch of Peter's colleagues opened their hearts to Jesus. Peter is a quiet guy like most nuclear physicists I know. And he looked across the table at me and he looked around the table at all those men and women and he said, in the last eight to ten years, by a miracle the Lord worked it out for me to stay in the United States working on research. He said, I want you all to know that there's now a hundred Chinese research scientists that believe that Jesus paid the penalty for their sin. And they believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. And they have gone back to China holding key positions of influence in the scientific community. But Peter looked at all of this, but most of all, they have key positions of influence in the house church movement of believers just like you. Brothers and sisters, on this Easter Sunday, praise God, all authority has been given to our precious, risen Savior. And we want to commit ourselves afresh to going into all the world and proclaiming the gospel. This was the earthquake that shook the world. And I want each one of you causing that earthquake to rumble and to roll and to open the doors of death so that people can hear about this only Savior, who left death behind and conquered it forever.